The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live and to Ask Dr. Doreen. I'm Shannon Penrod, and I'm here with the fabulous Dr. Doreen Grampichet. She's going to be answering your questions all throughout the next hour. We're so thrilled to have you guys here. Uh, good morning, Dr. Grampichet. Good morning, Shannon. Always lovely to see you and to be here. Lovely to have you here. I want to point out that we are live right now in many different formats. We're live right now on YouTube, on Twitter on Facebook, and we're also live on our homepage, autism-live.com, as well as about 10 other sites that we are live right now. But I will tell you that those the big three are the Facebook, the YouTube, and the Twitter, because you can be on those platforms and write in right now, and it shows up right here on our screen so that Dr. Grampichet and I both can see your comments, which is wonderful. When you are writing in on our homepage, which is autism-live.com, there is a chat at the bottom. It is not an interactive chart. Uh, chat, excuse me, chart, chat. It sounds so much alike. It's <laughs> that kind of in a morning. Uh, I cut off my hair and with it went my IQ. Uh, so uh, it's not an interactive chat. So you send the message and I get it, but I can't respond back to you in chat on your website. I can respond back to you here. And often, as is the case this morning, we take our first morning questions for Ask Dr. Doreen from that chat. But we quickly transfer over to things that are live. And in particular, it's easiest if you're on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter to get your questions asked. I also want to point out that for those of you who are not watching us live, that you're watching this recorded sometime in the future, we are a free download wherever you get your podcasts, Autism Live. In fact, we're the number one rated autism podcast worldwide right now, and that's all thanks to you guys. So please find our podcast, download it, please review, share, like, follow, whatever your particular thing is because that makes it so that other people can find this content as well. And we're saying good morning to everybody. Uh, so I wanna start with, we had a question that came in in the night that someone was concerned about our Yuba City office, uh, the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. They thought that it was closed and were wanting to know when it would reopen. And I wanna assure everybody that I double checked and uh, the Yuba City office is open. It is just not open to the public. So, um, you know, uh, they are seeing clients there. If you just can't drop in for a visit and um, there are very specific rules still because of COVID and taking precautions to ensure that uh, the clients, the, the children and the teens 
that are being seen there um, have maximum safety in terms of germ spread. So just want to let everybody know that uh, the Yuba City, there was a problem with the phone. So that might have been why you thought that it wasn't open, but it is absolutely open. I spoke to them myself this morning. Uh, okay, moving on to our next question. And Dr. Grampushi, I didn't really say much about you at all. So let me let me say something uh, really fabulous about you. If you don't know who Dr. Grampuche is, I'm so glad that you're here this morning because we're going to open up a whole new world for you that's filled with really wonderful things. Dr. Grampuche is a, a true expert in the field of autism. I believe the expert of our time in this field. And there has been no other time for autism like there is now. I, I always say she's a visionary. We, those of us who know her know that it, she has this ability to see around corners and things, see things before the rest of us can. And that she truly sees the individuals in and around the autism spectrum as that, individuals. Uh, she sees them with respect and loves to help to support them. And I think in general, just loves individuals and their families and their loved ones on the spectrum. And that is the place that she is always coming from. So we we super, super love and appreciate her. Working in this field for over 40 years, I know no one would believe that. I feel like a liar when I say that, but it's true. She has very good skincare. Uh, <laughs> You need to come out with a skincare line, I swear. I know part of it is genes, though. Uh, so in any case, she's here. She wants to answer your question. Hi everyone, I'm not sure if I'm on or if Shannon is on. Traven, could you let us know what's happening? Oh, we're both back, great. Okay, guys, uh, everyone, I guess we will wait a little bit to see because we're having a little bit of technical difficulty, um, but I am happy to start answering questions if you guys want to post questions on the chat um, while we're waiting for Shannon. Shannon. Uh, There's Shannon. Uh, can you hear me now? Yep, you're back. Okay. Great, because uh, I, I think they could hear both of us, but you couldn't hear me. So great, you can hear me now. Uh, we had somebody who wrote in in the night and wants to know how they can know when their child is hurting if they can't speak. Mm. Tough that's question, a, right? Very tough question, yeah. So um, <clears throat> that's a, a really difficult one. And I, it, it's one of the ones I think, Shannon, that often concerns a lot of parents because 
you know, it, it, there's one thing we want to know with our kids, and that is if they're in pain or distress of any kind. Um, I guess uh, this is one of the things where and it depends on the child's age and functioning level and, um, you know, medical needs or why you would think that they are hurting. There are, of course, some children who have a lot of illness, other comorbid illness, and, and it becomes more of an issue in that case. But um, I think this is where it becomes extremely important to teach a non-vocal form of communication. And uh, not just for this reason, for many reasons, um, it's really important to, to choose a non-verbal, non-vocal form of communication and to really uh, push that so that the child has some form of communication, can tell you when they're in pain, can also tell you when they want something or if, if something significant happens in their life. So um, we usually with our younger children will start with a PECS system, picture exchange communication system, uh, which is, you know, icons. I'm sure most of our families probably know what a PECS system is. Um, and with some children who are uh, interested in letters or are hyperlexic, uh, we will even skip that stage and go immediately to keyboarding and using an iPad or a computer. Um, now, nowadays, of course, the PECS systems can also be done on an iPad where uh, you have a variety of different types of communication systems that are based on pictures. So the child can basically tap uh, the picture of the object. And there's also actually some pictures that do uh, represent pain in different parts of the body. So like a headache or a tummy ache or those types of things. And so uh, moving to a form of communication that is non-vocal is pretty important. And, uh, you know, not just for the reason of explaining, expressing pain, but for many other reasons as well. Okay, we, we're having a problem with the live chat and I love Parker has written in and said, poor Shannon. And Parker, I appreciate your concern for me. However, like, you know, if this is the worst thing that happens to me today, we're all good. Uh, so I appreciate your, your pity, Parker, but uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna keep on moving. I brought it up on, our, um, on my phone, our Facebook. So I am still able to get your questions on Facebook and uh, Traven, if you're able to get them on YouTube, we'll be able to piece this thing together. Uh, Sherry has written in on Facebook and she says, I have a 3.8 year old granddaughter that wants to scratch and scream at you. She will also hit you. How do we handle it? Yeah. Send Sherry a hug. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's such a good question, Sherry. I think it's the basis of most of the questions that we get is, you know, how do I handle some sort of challenging behavior? And it's really important to start by, and I, I love it when, when a parent or a grandparent asks me this question, because it allows me to go back a little bit and just talk a little bit about, you know, what are these behaviors? So let's just start there. When you have any kind of challenging behavior, where, whether it's scratching or screaming or hitting, biting, throwing, spitting, you name it, um, what do you think those behaviors are? Because I, I want our viewers to know they're not part of the diagnosis of autism. There's no 
symptom. You know, when we diagnose autism, it's based on the presence of certain symptoms of, you know, certain types of things that the child does. And challenging behavior is not one of them. I just want everybody to know that. Um, we, you Generally, the challenging behaviors result from the lack of ability to communicate appropriately and therefore from frustration. So it's very, very important to first understand that most challenging behaviors are the child trying to communicate something. Okay, so when we when I teach our, our supervisors at CARD or the behavior technicians, I always tell them, when you see a challenging behavior, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, what is the child trying to communicate? If they could talk, instead of scratching and screaming, what would the child say? Um, and then that brings us to what we do in ABA, which is we identify the function of the behavior. And all that means is we figure out what, why the behavior is happening. What is the reason for the behavior? And always behaviors, challenging behaviors are always for the purpose of two things either to gain access to something or to avoid something. That's it. We do challenging behaviors in order to get something or avoid something. And the things that we want to get can be tangibles. So they can be food, they can be access to the playground, they can be mom, they can be whatever. They're, it's a thing that we want to get. They can be an activity. Um, you know, I want to go out and, and self-stimulate it's access to something right uh, and they can be access to attention it's always wanting to get something or and the ones that are like uh, what we're trying to avoid can, can also be a bunch of things like we're trying to avoid being in a classroom we're trying to avoid um following through with a demand that was just placed on us uh we're trying to avoid a a, a person so there's a lot of different things that we try to avoid and a lot of different things that we try to gain, okay, in life. So you, when we do what's called the function behavior, functional behavior assessment, we're figuring out what that particular behavior of screaming or scratching in that particular instance, um, what is that trying to gain or avoid? And that is... Very, very important because when you figure that out, then it's very easy to know how to change that behavior into a more adaptive, acceptable uh, way of communicating, right? So for instance, if your child is scratching and screaming, you got to look at see the things that are happening before and after that. So what, when do they scratch and scream? Do they scratch and scream when you give, place a demand, you ask them to do something? You might be just asking them to stop doing something, or you might be asking them to, you know, come to you, or you might be, whatever it is, like it, there's a million things that we, it could be a demand, or the child could be doing this to pay, to gain your attention because they feel like they don't have enough attention at that particular moment, uh, or they, you know, don't, they want you to leave them alone. Uh, it, it could be a million different things. You figure that out. And then what you do is you don't give the child what they want when they scratch or scream, but instead 
you teach the child to communicate appropriately, that could be vocal or non-vocal, um, and you teach them how to ask for the thing they want in a more adaptive, appropriate way, then you allow them to have it. So let's say a child is scratching and screaming when you um, tell them to, uh, you know, give you, like when, when they want a toy, right? So what they'll do is they'll, you know, scratch and scream and have a big tantrum because uh, nobody's giving them that toy. What you have to do is not give them the toy when they scratch and scream, but you go over and you teach them how to say toy or to point to an icon of toy, um, and then they can get the toy. Now, let's say the child is scratching and screaming because they've learned that uh, if they scratch and scream, they're going to get out of the classroom. And it's a very uh, effective form of getting out of the classroom. So you have to make sure not to allow the child to scratch and scream when they want to get out of the classroom. And you ignore that behavior, but you teach them to ask for a break so that they can get a break by asking properly and leaving the classroom. It's a little, you know, I'm simplifying it, so I may not have hit specifically what the function of the behavior is for your granddaughter, but really it's just that simple. It is about finding out, figuring out what is usually happening when the child scratches and screams. And I guarantee you there is a function. Most of the time our kids are not scratching and screaming just because. They do it because they're trying to communicate something. Thank you so much. I, you know, one of the things that I think, because I'm, for those of you who don't know, my son was treated um, with ABA. My son was diagnosed with autism and was treated um, by the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, which Dr. Grampichet founded, right? Uh, we talk about on this show, good quality ABA, uh, which is not always the run of the mill ABA that you find out there. One of the things that when my son was being treated that was hard for me was that it, everything felt like Dr. Grampichet, like everybody else was work, living and working in this world that I couldn't understand because my child was functioning in this way that seemed bizarre to me. That seemed like it was just, I was, I was stuck in autism land and I didn't understand the codes. I didn't understand everything. And I don't know whether it was you or someone else who said to me, Listen, it's it's this simple. When babies come out of the womb, they're not speaking. No baby comes out of the womb speaking. So how do they get their needs met? They cry. And then you do stuff based on them crying. And then in, in development that's quote unquote typical, you get to a phase where the child is starting to understand enough words to understand that there's an easier way to get what they want than crying. They just, it's not super functional for them and they're very frustrated and we call that the terrible twos. But for kids on the spectrum, they don't come out of that to the other side where they say, juice please, and you give it to them without some help and support. And when somebody explained that to me, I was like, oh my goodness, it suddenly took away all of the stigma and all of the worry. I was like, oh, we just have to get past this phase and help him to be able to communicate. And, and suddenly when I looked at it through the point of view of frustration and him communicating through frustration, I understood. Like I understood why he's hitting, why he's biting, why he's kicking. And, and I could put that to the side and do what you guys were asking me to do, which is all the stuff you just said. And I could get busy about the work to help him to get to that point. 
and it quieted all the fears because I was so I was like, what's going to become of him? What's going to become of me? How are we ever going to get through this? But when, when it was explained to me that way, I was like, oh, well, of course he's crying. And of course he's screaming and hitting and, and doing all these things because he doesn't know how to get what he wants. So I just want to add that in because I'm always, um, you know, the, the emotional component for the caregivers. It, you know, you speak truth and you speak science-based things. And I just want them to hear what you have to say. But I know sometimes we got to get past the emotion. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard, Shannon, when you're dealing with the situation. Even for me, I want I want our viewers to know I've been there too. And yeah. I'm a behaviorist and I teach this stuff, right? But I use I absolutely used to sit and just like cry with my third child trying to figure out this stuff, you know? How do I get the child to do what I want them to do without having a massive tantrum? Yeah, it's I love, it. I love Sherry wrote in some more stuff. She yeah, says great. Uh, she says, stop doing something. She says, when my husband comes home, she wants to beat him up. She will hit him, hit his glasses off of his head and jump on him. And she gets so much attention. So, so let me ask you a question, Sherry, and then we can work this through together. Does she generally really love being around your husband or does she want to avoid being around you. Let's answer that one. And then I can work, tell you exactly what to do, because I just want to make sure that she's doing it for his attention. It can also be that he's the, the uh, tough one in the house that who doesn't let her do stuff. So she's upset when he comes home. I kind of want to know which one it is, and then we can go through it together. Okay. And while we're doing that, I'm just going to go to one of the other comments that we had that came in. Um, oh, Sherry wrote back. Sorry, Sherry. Oh, she wrote back. She, she loves she him. That's attention then. So what she's doing is to try to get his attention. So you, you can do a variety of things here, and it's a, not that hard, honestly. So what you have to do is, first of all, uh, when, he, when, she come, when he is about to He's easy on her. <laughs> that's, why she, that's why she loves him. So what you have to do is, uh, first of all, when he is coming home, uh, make sure that uh, your granddaughter is busy doing something else and doesn't necessarily have access to him as he enters right away. So blocking the situation or preventing the situation is always a very easy way to deal with it, right? So you first do that so that now you have the ability to teach her how to interact with him appropriately. So now the second thing is if we know that she wants attention from him, we have to do two things. If she somehow gets away with it and again attacks him, then we, he has to gently put her down and walk away without interacting with her at all and literally... Uh, lock himself in a room away from her. In other words, she should not be allowed to get any attention from him if she does that behavior. And only for a few minutes, right? It's not a big deal. We're not going to ask him to lock himself away for the rest of the night. It's just for for a little while until she she will she will actually probably accelerate and have a little bit of a meltdown, but when that's over, uh, it'll get back. It, she'll start learning that the behavior of jumping on his head and throwing his glasses and all that sort of stuff is not a good way to communicate. 
Now, instead, you need to teach her a good way to communicate. So ideally, first you can prevent her from jumping on him and all that by putting, keeping her busy doing something like in another part of the house when he's about to come home. And then you have to teach her how to ask for attention. So all it is, if she's verbal, she could just say, you know, grandpa. She just say one word, grandpa play. If she's nonverbal, you can have her hand you an icon or a picture of playing. And once she's handed that, then he and she can come together and play, um, but in, under different circumstances. So in other words, she's now requesting to play with him and then he is going to engage with her. She talks, there you go. So essentially it's very simple. She just has to say, play with grandpa. And then grandpa comes and they play. He has to be the one that does not allow her to jump on his head, uh, throw his glasses. He has to teach her what is appropriate in terms of play. So if she does those types of things that are a little too wild, he has to put her down. And if she does like, you know, engage with toys and maybe outside activities, which are more appropriate, then he needs to really engage and reward her. Yeah, it's hard to do. And grandpa or papa, whoever, whatever his name is, will have to really steal himself and get lots of support from everybody else and be told, because it feels terrible to put yes. a child that you love down and walk away from them feels terrible. But long term, he wants to have a good, healthy relationship with her. And we don't want her to carry this into relationships with teachers. And, and to learn in life, oh, the way I get what I want is by knocking your glasses off. That won't work well when she's 18. Um, it's not working well now at, at less than. So what an amazing thing, though. I love when we hear that our kids have, have grandparents that love them this much, Dr. Grampuchet. I just love it. We're sending big hugs to, to grandma for writing in. And uh, let us know how all that goes. But make sure that you tell grandpa what a good job he's doing when he's um, putting her down and walking away from her, because that will be hard for him. I wanted to go to a question, a follow-up from last week. You answered a question and they wrote back, they said, hi, I would like to thank Dr. Doreen for answering my question on hyperbaric chambers and redox reactions. It was so informative and helpful. I could listen to Dr. Doreen speak all day and they put a smiley face. Would Dr. Doreen consider giving a crash course to BCBAs on all the biological aspects of treatment for autism, including diet, medications, exercise, whatever is out there? I would love to know it to better help my clients and thank you for an amazing show. And they sent their email. They, they are a BCBA. That's so awesome. I love that. Thank you so much, Shannon. I appreciate that. And I love it when BCBAs are kind of on the same page as I am with regards to treating the child as a whole human being and learning all the biomedical stuff. So the good news is that so it, for, for CARD BCBAs, I do actually give them courses on, on biomedical. Um, but what I wanted to say is that last year, I uh, uh, started an endowment at the um, Association for Behavior Analysis International. I actually donated money to them. They started an endowment in my name. And this endowment every year will pay for a medical doctor to come to ABAI National Conference, which occurs in May 
uh, which is open, by the way, to not, not just professionals, but parents as well. In fact, uh, right before COVID, they had like 8,000 people attending this thing. It's one of the largest conferences, and it is our kind of mothership for the field of behavior analysis. Um, so they have now developed an endowment. Every year, a medical doctor comes and gives a talk about uh, the medical aspects of autism and the biochemistry and the underlying issues with autism. This year, this May that just passed, was the first uh, session. And uh, we had Dr. Richard Fry, MD, PhD, who is one of the uh, most incredible uh, physician and scientist uh, who uh, deals with autism and teaches about autism and researches about autism and he came and gave a very kind of basic talk for our uh, BCBAs uh, who were attending the ABAI conference. I am sure that talk is available on their website, on the ABAI website. So please feel free to go there uh, to, to follow that and again Next year, there'll be uh, another one and another one, and hopefully over time, all BCBAs will gain a good understanding of all the medical aspects. It's a, uh, it's a thing uh, divinely to be wished. Uh, on YouTube, they've written in and said, uh, my son also gets obsessed, uh, uh, upset and obsessed with his 13-year-old brother's feet. He right. gets upset when his brother has his feet uncovered. We tried having my older son cover his feet, not working. But they said, also, I'm just exhausted. I feel like I'm on a hamster wheel. It's always something. We're sending virtual hugs to this mom. And this mom also, Shannon, if I'm not wrong, they wrote an earlier text, too, that says, my six-year-old child on the spectrum doesn't like when his 13-year-old neurotypical, I think, brother touches his toys or any items, tantrums, and gets upset. He doesn't like to share with his brother. So, Thank you. Um, so a lot going on with, with this mom, and I, I completely understand. It is exhausting. I mean, it's tough enough dealing with a 13-year-old and a six-year-old to begin with. Um, and then having these issues on top of it, it's, it's tough. So just a couple of pointers. Um, one is that, uh, let's start with the not wanting to touch and not wanting to share his, his toys. You know, first of all, it's, it's a little bit difficult. So, you know, their, their age difference is quite different. So I don't know that they would be sharing toys anyway. Um, I'm, I'm not sure which toys are appropriate for a six-year-old and a 13-year-old. Maybe we're talking technology. Uh, I'm not sure. But bottom line is that um, you, and this is going to be a tough answer, but this is the way you deal with it. Um, if he gets upset, now we're talking about your six-year-old, he gets upset. And he, again, he's expressing himself. He's communicating that, that feeling of being upset. By having, uh, by having a tantrum, as opposed to by just saying, uh, you know, I'm a little bit upset. I'd like, to, I'd like you not to touch my toys, right? So what we'd like ideally, our goal, our end result, is for the six-year-old to be, he's, we're, we're not gonna control the fact that he gets upset because he wants his toys, but we are gonna teach him to regulate himself and to, he's nonverbal, okay. We're gonna teach him to, to not 
throw a tantrum uh, if he gets upset, right? And instead to be able to express himself in some other way. So hopefully he's nonverbal, but hopefully he's either on a picture exchange communication system or he's signing or he has a keyboard. What's really, really important is that he has some form of communication. Perhaps you can write back and let us know. Because the what you need to do is to teach him how to communicate. Um, here we go. He doesn't like his brother to touch any of his things, books, sensory toys, anything that belongs to him, which honestly is okay. And um, it's, you know, that's not a big crime um, if there are gestures and a speech device. Okay. Um, so I think uh, what you need to do, this is probably what I would do. I would take all of his things and I would identify on a list what are the things that it's okay for the family if no one else touches. And what are the things that others will need to use or touch? Um, so there, you know, certain toys, it's totally fine. Sometimes our kids want to have their own thing. And by the way, hoarding behavior or this kind of behavior that you're talking about usually is a result of a little bit of anxiety. So it is okay for him to have his own things uh, for this time frame. He's only six right now. So it's okay for him to have his own things. But what you want to do is teach him maybe a location, a cabinet. Um, it, it's only with your older son. I understand. And it's okay because he's for some reason feeling threatened that your older son might take those things away. Um, but what I think you need to do is teach your younger son to put the things that he doesn't want anyone else to touch in a specific cabinet or drawer or a place where... That's his. Anything in there, we're not going to touch right now. It's yours, but you're putting them away. You're not touch. You're not leaving them around or whatever. And if he's engaged in playing with them when your other son approaches, I go back to the original question, which is, can your other son uh, play with other objects or interact with other objects sitting next to your six-year-old? so that your six-year-old starts to feel safe about the fact that your other son is not gonna take those items away from him. Um, if that's possible, that's probably where I would go because clearly your younger son has some sort of uh, anxiety about uh, your older son taking those things away from him. And we wanna try to get away from that. Now, moving on to the issue of the toes, uh, or the feet. Um, let me ask you a couple of questions about that. Um, does he, is it, when you say he's obsessed with, what does he do that indicates that he's obsessed with? Like, does he uh, like to look at the toes? Does he play with the toes, with the feet? What is his behavior that we want to change? Okay. Shannon, are you there? Yes, I'm totally here. We're waiting for her to, to write back. We have other people who are writing in. Um, he points at them and cries, she says. Okay, so I'm not sure if you, if there's any kind of 
I, I think at this point I would try to figure out what interactions may have happened between the two boys. Because my thinking is that something would, and I think what you should do is probably uh, like uh, put a, a camera in the room or something when they're interacting. Let's try to figure out what's going on. Because it sounds like he has a little bit of a fear of your other son, uh, particularly of your other son's feet. I don't know if your other son may have accidentally or even out of uh, out of frustration, like kicked him or kicked his toys or some sort of interaction has led to where they are now. And we need to kind of retrain uh, that fear and, and kind of change things a little bit. So I think I, I would probably want to observe without being in the room and figuring out what's going on exactly. And, and I see that the parent is saying, I was thinking that could be the reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just wanna, uh, being the middle child of three children, I just wanna talk about sibling interactions for a second. And your 13 year old might be a saint, might be an absolute saint, but there are sibling interactions and you know, he wasn't 13 forever. And when he was eight, he might've done something just to see what the reaction is. And while I think that siblings of people that are on the autism spectrum grow up to be the most incredible people on the face of the planet. I, I, my child is an only child, but I remember when, um, when he was in kindergarten, two of his buddies were kids who were neurotypical, but had siblings that were on the spectrum. And he would go to their house and play. And we quickly discovered that these kids were very adept at knowing which buttons to push. Like they would do this all the time with their brothers on the spectrum that if they wanted something they knew, I just have to do this and then he'll have a meltdown and then I get the toy. Like it's a survival thing. We're not saying that these are horrible siblings, but stuff happens stuff happens yeah. so and also shannon you you point out something very important which is that you know siblings tolerate a lot like some I, we just have to be very aware of the fact that it, i think it was another mom saying it's always something or you know and i, I want to make yeah. the same mom and i'm it's just like i'm, I'm so worn out right siblings kind of feel some of that as well believe it or not i mean and they're not doing as much as you are as a parent probably but a lot of times siblings are very exhausted very worn out uh they don't necessarily want to deal with this they don't want to be uh, and then most of the time our children on the spectrum get all the attention so our, our siblings are also frustrated in the sense that they're not getting attention they're not getting the time that they would like so it is not uncommon for siblings to act out in one way or another just because their level of frustration is higher and also because they're trying to get attention as well. So, I mean, it's very important to pay attention to that and, and realize that, uh, you know, siblings are people too. And uh, it's, it's a huge, huge uh, issue because, yes, and Shannon is right, a lot of times they come, uh, they, they grow into more incredible human beings. A lot of our uh, therapists and supervisors who are siblings are absolutely incredible. They have just a, such a different perspective. But meanwhile, they do go through a, a period of frustration uh, because their lives are, are also saturated with this, with this issue of autism. 
Yeah, and I'm thinking a 13-year-old probably really is very, at 13, you're really concerned about your stuff and nobody's touching your stuff. So can't there just be a rule for a little while? This this stuff is your stuff, as you were saying, and this stuff is the six-year-old stuff. And, and as you said, here's the family stuff and anybody can touch that. And just being yeah. black and white with the rules. I just um, think yeah, I think they there's a there might be Shannon, and I'm not sure, but there might be a little bit of, uh, you know, each one kind of trying to to tick the other one off a little bit because yeah. that's because there's a little bit of usually what happens is we all get frustrated and then we deal with it in kind of a slightly passive aggressive way. So in other oh, yeah. words, we hold on to the to the anger or frustration and we kind of take it out in these little other ways. And that could be happening as well. In fact, a lot of our viewers are writing in and talking about their sibling issues and it's not always really like uh, good stuff. So uh, I'm hugging this mom and hoping that she can figure it out and make it so that everybody feels safe. We had a question that came in. Can you help my child who is five and on the spectrum? Uh, he poops everywhere. He is pee trained, but struggles to, we struggle to get him to poop in the toilets. Yeah. So I mean, that's a pretty long answer. Sometimes I try to figure out how I can answer these things in a short period of time. Yes. Um, there's phases to training for, for, uh, bowel movements. And um, I'm not sure, Shannon, you would know better if the, the video that we did with Sienna actually goes into the bowel movement training or does it just focus on the, the urination training? Because with bowel movements, there's multiple issues, multiple things. One is that the child, uh, so like, I'll just make some assumptions here that it, your child is in pull-ups or in some sort of, uh, you know, I would assume pull-ups. Uh, because he's not fully trained yet. Um, with bowel movements, it's all about two things, I guess, Find, figuring out a time or a time range or a time frame where usually the bowel movement happens. So that's first. Um, and, and for most people, it's not too long of a time frame. Like with most children, it's actually after a meal, like within an hour after one of the meals. Um, if you can try to identify the time frame that it occurs, then you go back through sort of the Fox and Astrin training procedure where you have the child in the bath in the in the bathroom area uh, until they void. And once they void, there's a huge reinforcer and then they get to go out and play. So essentially it's about keeping the child close to a toilet. Uh, when you know that that time frame is happening. Now, a, a second issue that occurs with bowel movements sometimes is that children fear the toilet. It's a very interesting thing, but kids don't know where things are going. And so they're like, that thing is scary. Like, I, I don't know if it's because they're worried of falling in or if it's because, you know, things that are in there disappear. So um, a lot of times our kids are scared of the toilet. So um, I think you might do well by using a, uh, like a porta potty, like those little child potties, and then actually teaching your child to empty it into the toilet and making kind of a fun game out of flushing it. 
Um, so that you have to be sure that that process is a positive experience for the child. And uh, so when they do actually take the porta potty and go in there, and then they can go into the toilet with you, throw it away, flush, make sure flushing is not an aversive sound for the child. There's all these different things you have to think about. Um, make sure the child is feeling extremely rewarded, uh, like really throw a party around it. And uh, basically that's that's how you do it. And thank you. I think we just posted um, the training that we had, the, the review of, of toilet training. Thanks for that, Trevin. Okay. And I do want to say that the, the this, I don't know which one Traven posted. The Sienna one doesn't go into it extensively. There actually is a newer training that um, Cecilia Knight and Jen Yakos, uh, did that I participated in that if that viewer wants to write to me too, I can see if we can email it to her. It doesn't exist on the, the server uh, yet. Um, oh, Traven posted the entire playlist yeah. of all the times we've talked about. So you'll find good stuff there, but there is another training too. And if you want that specifically, I will do my best. I don't know if we have it in a way that's sendable, but my email is s.penrod at autism-live.com and just put in the subject matter toilet training. Um, okay, we have a, Melissa has written in and said, hi, my daughter has memory issues. She forgets things easily. Any suggestions? She usually forgets where she's going or what she's looking for. Can I just do a plug here for... Um, there, there is a DVD called Recovered that Dr. Grampuchet was involved in. And I think one of the most heartbreaking things in it, you, you see these kiddos when they're younger starting therapy. Um, and, it, and one of the most heartbreaking scenes, Vince Redman, who's a regular on this show, is seen as a very young man sitting with a little girl. And he tell her, tells her the story of, of Peter Cottontail, right, Dr. Grampuchet? Mm -hmm. And she, and he says, okay, so there's a bunny named Peter and da, 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 da. And he says, what's the name of the bunny? And you see her little face and she wants to remember it. So, and she's trying so hard, but she can't remember it. But then you get to see her when she's 16 years old and she remembers all kinds of things because she's gone through training. And now of course, Jana is a very accomplished adult. Um, so I just want to encourage that parent to watch Recovered. Um, it's available. You can purchase it on Amazon. But Dr. Grampuchet, maybe you can talk a little bit about this, you know, why our kids sometimes have memory issues and what, what it is you guys do about it. Yeah, so memory is very interesting. First of all, some of our there's several different types of memory. So there's, you know, short-term memory, long-term memory, working memory. Working memory is where many of our kids struggle. That has a lot to do with bringing in new information and assimilating it into old information. We're, what you're talking about doesn't sound like a memory issue. It sounds like a distractibility issue. Mm -hmm. And they're a little bit different from each other. Uh, a lot of our kids are distractible. When they go someplace, they forget why they went there because on the way they were distracted by something. So, and that's a big portion of autism, obviously, as well as for ADHD. And so really it's very much about kind of dealing with the right issue. Now, having said that, if you go on skills, skillsforautism.com, you will see a whole, and you go in the section on, I think, cognition, 
in the cognition curriculum. There's several different curricula areas, and one of them is cognition. And in there, you will see many issue, uh, lessons pertaining to memory. Um, and with distractibility, one of the things that, I mean, I, I'm trying to think where the lessons on distractibility are, and if I'm right, they're all over the place. So one, a lot of them are actually in the language curriculum and also in the social curriculum. With distractibility, you go through several stages. The way you teach it, like let's say your child is, wants to go from one location to another. So what you do is you, make, you do it in a very small way. So you uh, have the child go, let's say from here to just you know five feet from here and deliver a message. Again, it depends on your level of functioning and all of that, but assume the child can deliver a message. For example, um, hello, just a very easy message. Um, so you tell the child, go say hello to dad. And dad's standing right there and the child goes over and says hello. Now you start to expand the, the distance so that dad is, let's say, down the hall and you do the same thing, very simple message. And once the child has mastered that, you can now do a variety of things. You can uh, make the path a little distracting. So for instance, place an object that might distract the child like a toy in the path from here to the other room and still keep the message very, very simple and short. And so when the child goes to dad, let's say they get distracted, um, practice that. Just go back again and say, let's try again. And the child goes and says hello, does that so many times so that no matter what the distraction is on their path, they remember it. And you do that in multiple different rooms, multiple different locations, different people, different distractions. And then when you're really good at that, you start to make the message a little bit longer and more complicated. So you gradually will now, hello will now be something like, uh, you know, hi, dad, what day is it? Or whatever the child's ability is. Or maybe another way to make the message more complicated is to ask a question. So uh, one of the stages of this lesson is that we tell our child, go ask dad, what day is it? And then the child has to go, go through this path of distraction, get to dad, ask the, day, the question, and come back and answer you. So what I'm saying is, the way we do ABA with everything is you start with a very simple um, task and a lot of reward, and then you gradually make it more and more complicated. Wonderful. So many people have written in and said so many different things. They're saying thank you for the links that Traven's put in there for Amazon and the playlist for the potty training. Uh, someone said, Renee and Elvira said they saw the video recovered. They started to read to their son that way. And they, they said, P.S. I started crying watching that video. Oh, sister, I, I sobbed so hard. My husband thought that I wasn't going to make it, but you know, it changed the way we looked at things because it helped us to understand what it was we were working on and why. Um, they've said, thank you for the link. And they, uh, Renee and Elvira went on to say it took a week, but now my son can say his name from reading books, which is really, uh, amazing. I also want to say that Fatima has written back in, she has a seven-year-old grandchild in Switzerland. She had written, uh, us an email, which I then forwarded to your assistant, Dr. Grampy Shea about potentially using them. 
but she wants to know if there's anybody you can recommend in Switzerland. I, I also want to say, Fatima, check your email because I sent you an email about were they interested in getting um, IBT training? So let me know about that. But Dr. Grampichet, uh, while I bring up the skills message for the week, any do you know of anything in Switzerland? I happen to have one of my excellent doctoral students who used to also work at CARD and ran our clinic in Australia, now lives in Lausanne, Switzerland. So she is a fabulous, fabulous clinician. And Shannon, I will give you her information and uh, please forward it to Fatima so that she can help them. All right, we will do that. Um, but I did want to mention uh, skills in IBT because, um, you know, if you're someone who's looking for more training on how to do the things that Dr. Grampichet is talking about, and you don't have time or the money to go get an advanced degree in it, you need to know it yesterday. Um, we, we can give you some tools and some training that's available very inexpensively online and during COVID, they've been offering some things for free. So skills, which is an online curriculum and a tool to use, so effective. I'm their biggest, biggest fan. Uh, this week, they are offering to parents and guardians their free IBT parent e-learning course, Parent Useful Strategies for Your Home, which is so great for the summer months to be able to set up your home to work in a way that's conducive towards learning. If these are videos, and this is a free video for you. You have to request to get your pencil ready, I'm going to tell you how to request it. If you or you know someone who's an educator, or if you want to give a gift to your child's school teacher uh, that they're starting to work with in the fall, um, this week they're offering the IBT, that's the Institute for Behavioral Training, Educator E-Learning module, module, Educator Behavior Management. And let me just tell you, if you're not managing the behavior in the classroom, you're not going to get to teaching. So that's available to teachers at no charge. I'm going to give you that number in just a second. And they are also, this is the one that I was talking to you about, Fatima. They're continuing to offer their RBT, which stands for Registered Behavior Technician 2.0 training course. This is an online course that's a 40-hour course. It's normally a $400 and I think $40 value. This is the beginning learning that all behavior technicians do uh, before they work in the field. Um, and they're offering it to parents on a case-by-case -case -case basis. They're also offering a 10% discount. By the way, that RBT that they're offering on a case-by-case -case is free. Um, but you have to you know, let them know why you're interested in it and that you'll do the full 40 hours. They're also offering a 10% discount on all skills products. How do you get these things? If you're in the U.S., you can call 877 Nine seven five four five five nine. That's eight seven seven nine seven five four five five nine. Tell them you saw it on Autism Alive, and Shannon told you to call. If you are outside the U.S. and you want to access this, all you need to do is email me s dot penrod at autism-live.com. That's s.penrod at autism-live.com. What I do is then forward your email to the folks over at IBT and they usually batch them. So they do them like once a week. So you have to be patient with them, but they will be able to hook that up for you. So all of that is available to you. Um, 
Brian has written in and said, we're new to ABA therapy. We were recommended by our child psychologist with a newly opened ABA provider, uh, but was told um, that the staff are not new and they are experienced who decided to build their own ABA. There's no review online yet about them, but was told that they there's no waiting list and there's staff avail available within the area for the child. Do you think we should trust and go for it? And what do we need to consider regarding choosing a good ABA provider for our child? What a great question, Brian. Brian, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to do well because it's those kinds of questions that caregivers need to ask to help their children. So Dr. Grandpichet. Yes, this is a great question. Why don't we take a few minutes to talk about this? Uh, and uh, without giving you any guilt, Shannon, because I know you're in the process of writing about this. No, I have to finish it. It's like almost done. What is wrong with me? Okay, keep going. This is such an important topic, right? And, and Shannon actually has started to, to write an article about this. And uh, I threw in my two cents as well. Uh, but I, I'm trying to just go off the top of my head now, Brian, because there's a number of different things. I would say... The most, the first thing is obviously you want to make sure that uh, everyone receives adequate training. And by the way, let me just say it's not uncommon. A lot of people, for instance, who work at CARD, I mean, if you look at most of the ABA providers out there right now, actually at some point or another worked at CARD uh, because we're so old, right? So a lot of people, when they work at an agency, after a while, they decide I'm just going to go and do my own agency. So uh, they might be okay. So, you know, like, let's start with that. Um, but I do appreciate what Parker wrote as well, which is that you really have to differentiate between good and bad uh, ABA. And the concept of having a good provider starts with making sure that they are people who understand your child and realize that your child is, is a, a unique whole individual. And by that, I mean that the person who does your interview or intake or runs your child's program needs to spend a lot of time asking you questions about your child. Every child on the spectrum of autism is different. And it's, it, it, this is why for us at CARD, we do a massive assessment when we first start the skills assessment, which takes a really long time, but it allows us to identify all the strengths and weaknesses of your particular child, as opposed to kind of treating every child the same. That is very important. So uh, first thing is individualized intervention. That's like the most important thing to me. Second thing is parent involvement and respect. You need to be very involved. They need to provide a great deal of training to you. And they actually need to kind of listen to you because you're the person that knows the child best and it has, there has to, there's going to be dialogue. I'm not always going to agree with every parent, but I need to express why. And I need to explain to parents my reasoning and I need to listen to parents and understand what you want for your child as opposed to what I think is best. So that's, that's a very important factor as well. So being, having the child, the parent involved. Uh, thirdly, whoever trains the folks at that organization needs to be very high quality. With us at CARD, our training team is the oldest, are the oldest folks who've been at CARD over 20 years. So the, the head of our training department has been at CARD over 20 years. We have a bunch of seniors 
uh, throughout CARD, we call them seniors only because they've been at CARD and providing clinical supervision for over 20 years. All of those folks are involved in training and quality um, checks. So what they do is they do evaluation and assessment uh, to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, you can go wrong with ABA, absolutely. As, as Parker said, you can become too strict. You can not reinforce enough. You can push the child too much. On the other hand, you can also be boring and just repeat the same stuff. ABA is important to move along at a pace that the child is feeling good, but it's slightly challenging, so you're moving forward. Um, Shannon, what are some other things we can throw out real quick? You know, one of the biggest things that I always want to, that I encourage people to ask is ask them what they want, what what's on their list of what would they want to teach to your child? And then let's say they say, okay, toilet training. We want to work on toilet training. I, I would ask them at least once, how are you going to generalize that? And I would ask it exactly that way. How are you going to generalize that lesson? And then I'm looking to see what their response is because a good quality ABA is not, they're not even going to have to hesitate. They're going to tell you exactly how the, you don't even have to understand what generalization is to see their reaction. And if somebody says, Ooh, I don't know, let me go look it up or let me ask the supervisor. Or let me, that's a sign that they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, Cause I'm seeing a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the question of generalization itself is a very important one as well. Generalization is essentially everything I'm teaching the child in this setting is actually going to be meaningful and useful to the child in real life. So make sure that what they're teaching your child is something that is pertinent and relevant to where you would like your child to be in real life and that the child learns how to use it in real life. I could teach your child, you know, complicated sentences, but unless they use it in real life, it's useless. Yeah. So those are some of the things that I think are very important. I think, as Shannon said, I think like set up, have the discussion of what your goals are and make sure it makes sense to you, like what their plan is to get you to your goal. How are they going to get you there? One other really, really important thing that you should know, all parents should know, um, payers, insurance companies, try to incentivize providers to not request a lot of hours. So this is a very, very important thing. And in fact, when I if I have a child and I recommend a high level of hours, I am very much under scrutiny by the payer and I have to justify that every, every six months. So there's a lot of like good providers will really stand up and fight for you to try to get your hours on a continual basis. Providers who don't care so much will just give in and let the payer dictate uh, fewer and fewer hours over time. That is not to the benefit of your child. So you have to also ask these folks, how many hours are they going to suggest for your child? And I can be very clear with you. If your child is under the age of five or six, they should be getting somewhere close to 40 hours a week to start. So they should be getting a lot of intervention in their early years because it's less and less as they age. So, and, and in the early years, our brain has plasticity and we want to try to teach the child as much as possible. Yeah, I, if I hear one more family tell me that they have a three-year-old on the spectrum and that what they were told was to do 15 hours. Or 10 or five. I'm going to throw yeah. up. 
I'm yeah. just going to, I'm going to throw up and throw a hissy. We're over time. So we have to say goodbye, but Brian, I'm so glad you wrote in Parker. Thank you for all the assist. Thank you all of, all of you for being here, but most especially thank you to Dr. Grant Bichet for all her work and her time and her wonderful words. We so appreciate you. Um, we are back tomorrow and I don't know who the guest is, so I'll have to fill you guys in on that. Um, but I can tell you we're covering research on Friday. So for Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. Until then, give your kiddos a hug for me and, uh, I, and one for you as well. And a big one for Dr. Grampy Thank you so much for being here, you guys. Bye-bye for now.